God, these people are so fucking annoying. Um, they really are. So we can definitely talk about that, uh, that kind of additional wrinkle to the story. But yeah, I mean, I'm very keen to just get into like who David Sachs is. Um, sure, sure. And, yeah. And, and all of that. Especially because he's, he's, a, he's a related character to the TMK universe, you know, but we've never really talked about him. Like, we've talked tons about uh, Chamath. We've talked tons about Jason. We've been featured on Jason's other podcast, the, the Startup Weekly or whatever. T- he's, he's, uh, he, he's talked shit about TMK on there a few times. He's also a TMK subscriber, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, he's yeah. he's a Patreon subscriber to TMK. <laughs> wow! But I think it's like at the five dollar tier, you cheap motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> we have a venture capitalist tier. It's only fifty should, bucks a a, a month. <laughs> <laughs> we should seek him out and block him, and just be like, the only way you can subscribe is if you subscribe at the five hundred dollar level. I will I will block every dummy account you, you put out. <laughs> We could, st- do you want to, um, I was going to say we can start at the beginning uh, and, and acknowledge that you're not here to talk about crypto, which I think a lot of people <laughs> will absolutely expect you to be when they see you in the, in the title. But uh, did, did you want to give an update on the, the book or a little teaser or anything? Or you want me to just like cruise oh, past I'm, that? I'm just happy to say, yeah, I'm, Ben and I are working furiously on a book about crypto and fraud. Um, it, it's coming out hopefully July, 2023. Um, and you know, there'll be, there'll be some other stuff I think to announce down the road, other projects and stuff like that. But, um, th- I mean, there are potential minor crypto angles here, but you know, nothing significant with the sack stuff, but I mean, how about we just use something like that as the cold open, Jeremy <laughs> coming summer, 2023. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 205 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And we are very pleased, at long last, to be joined by Jacob Silverman. Uh, This is way, way, way overdue. Uh, and you are not here to talk about crypto. Uh, there'll, there'll be there'll be no mention of uh, crypto, of tokens, of none of that stuff. Uh, that is not what we are here to talk about you with. Uh, you go do that other places, Jacob. <laughs> we don't we don't have none of that bullshit on this on this podcast. I blocked it all out. Don't worry. I could use an evening <laughs> without it. <laughs> Nah, we will definitely uh, have you back uh, to talk about crypto, talk about your work with Ben McKenzie as that book comes out next year. Um, but 
You have a great new profile of David Sachs that just recently came out in the New Republic. And as we'll get into, only is getting more and more relevant as uh, Elon Musk is now our the overlord of the place where all of us spend most of our time, uh, Twitter. Um, so, you know, some, some half of us on this podcast, me and Jeremy are both, uh, not only blocked by Elon Musk, but now also blocked by the, the man who owns the place where we live and work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but David Sachs is an interesting guy as we'll get into. He's, he's like, he's this, ex- he's an extended character or he's a, he's a character in the extended TMK universe that we've never actually really talked a lot about we've talked a lot about like his kind of weird crew of people that he runs with um you know not only the kind of paypal mafia which he's part of you know being the the chief operating officer of paypal um at its founding also weirdly being another one of these uh south african um you know venture capitalist entrepreneurs that run silicon valley along with uh, uh, Elon Musk, of course, and, and Peter Till, who's not, you know, from South Africa, but spent a lot of his formative years there. Uh, and so we can get into that. Um, also, you know, David Sachs is part of the, uh, the, the all in podcast crew with, you know, Dave, uh, Chamath Palahapatia, uh, who we've talked extensively about, Jason Calicanis, who we've also talked about. Shout out to Jason. Uh, I know you listen sometimes. Uh, and David Friedberg, who we also have not talked a lot about. But David Sachs is, he's kind of, in some ways, flown, I feel like he's flown under the radar with a lot of like, our, 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 our group of like leftist tech critical people, uh, you know, who pay, who may probably pay more attention to other figures in Silicon Valley beyond David's other than David Sachs, but he's not someone while well, he might've, he's might've flown under our radar. He is absolutely like big, large and in charge on the radar of the right wing. Um, you know, he's like a regular contributor and a, a, a has, uh, you know, reg- regular interviews with people like Megyn Kelly. He was just recently on David Rubin's podcast where he spoke for like 45 minutes about Ukraine. He's kind of become this like weird, uh, like, like international relations, geopolitics, right wing kind of nationalist, um, you know, a, a guy, in other words, that if we're going to know the politics of Silicon Valley, if we're going to know how uh, uh, influence peddling and power uh, is, is uh, you know, happens in Silicon Valley, especially through these venture capitalists, these, you know, these billionaires or wannabe billionaires, uh, these, you know, tech founders, you know, we'll get into it. But, you know, David Sachs is now in the war room for Elon Musk's takeover of, of, uh, of Twitter. And so he's a, he's a big power player. Uh, in a lot of this stuff. And so I guess first things first is, I mean, what made you uh, want to 
do a profile on David Sachs. Like, what was it about him where you're like, all right, I need to spend a lot of time actually reading into this guy, looking him up, talking to people, you know, doing God's work of listening to the unlistenable podcast and guest appearances that he does. Uh, I, I, I tried to listen to some all in in preparation for this. And that shit is, that shit's hard. That, that, that's, <laughs> that's, that's unlistenable. So, uh, props to you doing the real uh, gumshoe reporting out here. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, um, I'll actually comment on that part in a second. But, you know, over the summer, and this actually started a few months ago, um, you know, David Sachs has become very prominent recently in talking about Ukraine and basically all the ideas that Elon Musk has put forward about Ukraine uh, were previously voiced by David Sachs, maybe also by Vladimir Putin. We don't re- know for sure. But, um, uh, over the summer, I was talking with an editor. We were looking at sort of where tech and actually criminal justice reform um, kind of met. And we were talking about the Chase Abudin recall in in San Francisco. He was the progressive district attorney there. Uh, it wasn't going so well. The city obviously has a lot of social issues and some crime issues. And uh, eventually the recall succeeded in, uh, I believe it was June 7th of this past summer. So... Uh, the piece took a little while to come together, uh, but it was really trying to narrow down, I guess, this reactionary current that seems to be going through tech that's not necessarily new or original, but is definitely there and seems of renewed prominence and is feeding into real political races and, and politics in the form of, of money and media being published and rhetoric and things like that. So uh, we started looking at... Um, the situation in San Francisco, especially after the Boudin recall succeeded. And Sachs was not only a major donor, not for a while he, he had donated more. Uh, he was one of the, the biggest donor, I believe, but in the end he was certainly top five or so, but he was a major donor to, uh, to the, to the recall effort. And along with some other tech people, some billionaire property developers, but really he was also just so vocal. Uh, he, he was on, Megan Kelly's show, as you mentioned, he he's been on Tucker Carlson. Though I at least one of those appearances was after the recall. He goes on all these podcasts, a lot of tech ones, uh, some crypto ones actually. But you know, he's also writing on Medium. He has his own podcasting website called Colin. He has his own show with the, the All In guys, and he was basically painting Chase Boudin. He called him the killer DA and was saying that his policies led to people dying and that Boudin didn't really care about crime victims. And he honestly, he says some stuff that is very much in line, I think with today's Republican party and kind of MAGA types, but is coming from perhaps a more, well, a higher class or a more money rarefied place because he is a successful businessman in tech and acknowledged by some people as a competent executive. So uh, uh, that's what really struck me was I think the le- not only where he was putting his money, but the level of rhetoric. And then the other thing, which ended up being kind of a smaller component of the piece, the, uh, was that um, I found he has a new pack. Uh, a, a political action committee where he's funneling money so far mostly to uh, Ron DeSantis, who uh, that that was, again, another discovery here was that, I mean, it wasn't really a mystery, but you can see all these reactionary tech guys lining up uh, behind Ron DeSantis. He's kind of their, their alternate or who, or their, or their other horse, you know, depending on what happens with Trump in 2024. 
uh, Chamath has given, I think, a million dollars to DeSantis. Um, and so it, it was clear that Sachs was kind of stepping forward in some of his political activities. He's always been a donor, but in April, he gave a million dollars to J.D. Vance's PAC, a reportedly brokered by Peter Thiel. It was right when Thiel also brokered uh, Trump's endorsement of Vance. This all happened within a few days of each other. So it wasn't just about what Sachs has been doing in, in the Bay Area, which is significant. He donated a lot of money also to the attempted recall of Gavin Newsom and, and some of these other issues like that. So this sort of tech rejection of the Democratic status quo, both small d and also the Democratic Party, he's really at the forefront of that in California. And now he's looking more broadly with this new PAC that I found it. I don't think anyone had reported on it. It's been reported on one tiny blog, but I couldn't really get him to talk to me about that. But you look at the the pack, and um, it's all of his friends who are donating. Uh, the founder of Earthlink, uh, people who are kind of on his boards or part of Craft Ventures, his whole circle. They've raised a few hundred thousand dollars, and so it's clear what kind of where he's headed and how he's emerging. And that's what really inspired all of this. Um, the other thing I, I think is worth saying is that. This was a piece that I think was interesting to write because you you could kind of do it. Uh, some people might call this a write around in the world of journalism. Like I, did, I couldn't interview Sachs. He said no. Um, I, I emailed him. I emailed people around him. I talked to one of his representatives for like an hour, but he basically said no. Um, they said he doesn't talk to many journalists, which isn't really true because he's on podcasts and TV all the time. He but, spends um, all his time talking to journalists. He just a, picks the ones he talks to. Absolutely. He's a poster. You know, people are joking about that today, that he's in the war room at, at Twitter. I mean, he really is a poster. And I actually think that affects some of the media and politics that he does is sort of his poster's attitude. But anyway... He, he because he does speak so much and record and do a lot of podcasts and writing and he's in Newsweek and on Medium and on Colin and everywhere. Um, you can actually get a lot of sense of who he is and what this guy thinks, uh, or at least what he says in public. And so I, I went through a lot of what he says and 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 has said over the last year, and then I went back to a lot of his stuff at Stanford, where he was basically writing partners with Peter Thiel. And they wrote together at Stanford, and then they wrote a book together, The Diversity Myth. And so this is a, a piece that I really try to tell through his own statements uh, and what he seems to think and his apparent views about the world. Yeah. Do you think we could start maybe, you know, I think that the piece of the part of your piece where you hone in, and I think it's a really important part on this diversity myth and his co-writings with Thiel as a way to ask, like, okay, have the have the beliefs changed over time? Um, you know, what has shifted, what hasn't, and why has there been a change or not a change? Could we start, you know, with talking a bit about, like, you know, what is the diversity myth? What was he writing with Thiel? Was he part of Thiel's, like, network that, you know, have, you, know you and others have written about that he's cultivated over the years of thinkers, activists, people to pour money into, people to invest into and to cultivate? Yeah, definitely. I, I think that that's sort of where I, I started almost, uh, or at least um, it, the, the chronology of my, of my article kind of goes back to that. Because in the early 90s, uh, Peter Thiel and David Sachs and uh, a man whose last name I probably always mispronounced, but Keith Rabois, I believe, who ended up being an original PayPal employee. Now he has uh, a website where they, they're kind of flipping houses. It's kind of part of this financialization of real estate, it seems like. But um, 
he's very rich now and he lives in Florida and, and he in Miami with sort of the, the right wing tech billionaires there. And he co-hosted a political fundraiser with Saks. but basically these three guys and, and some other he's people, a general partner at founders fund as well. Peter Tills, venture capitalist. That's right. I, I shouldn't have left that out. Yeah. So that's where this network really started, right? The founders fund PayPal mafia kind of network was in the early nineties at Stanford. Uh, there were, at least by some accounts, there was sort of a conservative backlash or counter-revolution, arguably, going on at Stanford uh, in response, really, to the, the 60s and the, and the early 70s and the hippie era and, you know, the vestiges of that, and which was embodied actually in some of the, the professors there. But also, you know, it was the early 90s and there was a certain form of multiculturalism in vogue. And for them, they really didn't like what they saw, both kind of the legacy of the 60s and these new efforts at diversity and multiculturalism, which were kind of buzzwords of the time. Not that they've completely gone away, but as I argue in the piece, a lot of the stuff that they were kind of fearful of, really, and arguing against would now just simply fall under the umbrella of somehow woke culture or progressive culture. And, and we can make those linkages clearer later. But so they, they started writing together at, at Stanford in around 92 or so, I believe. But uh, Peter Thiel founded something called the Stanford Review, which was, you know, a deliberately ideological publication designed to provide sort of a, a very conservative counterweight to what was going on at Stanford. They rather infamously published something called the rape issue uh, of, of the Stanford Review. Max Chafkin writes about this in his biography. Uh, I wasn't able to find it online, but I'm sure it's out there somewhere. Um, and, you know, it's it, these guys kind of work in thought experiments. You know, they, they're, they're free speech maximalists, so they think you can kind of say anything which I'm not necessarily against, but of course, when you say certain things, there has to be accountability for it, which I think is the missing part of this equation. But, you know, so they, they say they certainly at the time were saying things that would be considered extreme or offensive or outrageous in some way, um, not necessarily illegal, but, and then they would get these horrible reactions in return. And, you know, now we would call that trolling, I think, and, and kind of that online behavior of like, why are you so mad? I'm just trying to test the bounds of free speech. But so, for example, they had this rape issue of their magazine where they um, uh, Sachs basically both in this issue and then in the book they wrote later, the diversity myth talks about a statutory rape as kind of this relic left on the books from a, a more Puritan age. And I would say that in their writings and certainly in the diversity myth. There is an overall effort to downplay rape as a problem, as uh, a crisis on college campuses, which, you know, we've 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 all lived through uh, just that same debate just in the last decade. And, you know, it's pretty widely acknowledged and certainly statistically backed up that rape and sexual assault is a huge problem on college campuses. They were kind of uh, culture warriors in a previous iteration of that kind of battle, and they totally rejected it. Um, they talked about it sort of as hysteria, that statistics were exaggerated or made up, that men were being demonized. And I don't know if there's really much other way of putting it that they were downplaying rape. Um, in general, they were very much afraid of multiculturalism. This was sort of an epithet that they wielded the way people wield woke today. So anything could be multi multicultural. There's even the multicultural rape charge. That's a fra phrase that they use sort of. I guess someone claiming rape after 
an, uh, an encounter, you know, a woman who might realize later on, uh, actually that was rape to them. They write about this. And to them, that was absurd almost, uh, you know, now that is a more accepted part of kind of the culture and the discourse and even the law, but, uh, conservatives accepted, but for them that they thought that was kind of ridiculous. So those are the sorts of things you hear in their early or see in their early writings. There was actually a much more explicit defense in some of their writings. They wrote for the national review. They wrote for wall street journal. They wrote for more obscure publications. Um, but they, it was a very also, um, explicit defense of Western civilization, the kind of stuff you hear from, you know, kind of alt-right types or people who have like a Greek bust as their Twitter avatar, but haven't been (laughs) to a museum, have never been to a museum or something like that. You know, um, they, they talk explicitly about progressivism and multiculturalism being an an attack on Western civilization and and Western tradition. So it's that kind of stuff, you know, um, kind of pre-monarchist kind of stuff that you might hear from Curtis Yarvin today. And I thought, I started going back through it and I thought it was actually very revealing. Um, Granted, they wrote some of these things almost 30 years ago, but I would argue to answer your other question that their views probably haven't changed that much because honestly, you literally sub in woke for multiculturalism and some of the stuff. And it's exactly the same uh, as the stuff you hear today from them and from other people online, like, and from people in this reactionary tech milieu. So, um, you know, some people, when I, I actually did a previous interview uh, on the majority report, they, they, they invoked paleocons and Pat Buchanan, who were kind of actually doing a lot of the same things in the early 90s, you know, early culture mm-hmm. war. Um, the other aspect we can talk about is that, like, they're pretty isolationist. Um, and um, but in like a in a paleocon, even Bircher kind of sense, like um, and America first, which is. Of course, a term you can trace back to the to the Birchers and to the forties and to and to some you know American fascist movements and things like that. That's their foreign policy, which is actually for on its own somewhat coherent. Actually, as I argue, their domestic ideas are much more uh, kind of muddled. But the culture war they're fighting is that is against wokeism, is against their earlier ideas about multiculturalism, and and I don't really think it's changed much in the last thirty years. I think this is a really great history to to pull out. I mean, the way that these guys are, yeah, longstanding veterans of the culture war. You know, they've been in it for thirty years. Uh, and and you know, just before we get off of uh, Keith Rabra uh, or Rabwoy or whatever, um, you know, you mentioned him throughout the the piece a little bit in part because he was part of this close circle uh, at Stanford with Peter Till and David Sachs, you know, had his own uh, controversies over the years, right? So, you know, you, you talk about how, you know, Rab Ron and a couple of his friends were uh, standing outside the home of a university lecture and yelling, you know, the F slur and other homophobic language uh, at this lecture, you know, as a way of being like, you know, let's test the bounds of free speech, you know, that kind of yeah. bullshit. Um, you know, he got ousted, uh, or rather he resigned, uh, as COO of Square, chief operating officer of Square in 2013 after, uh, uh, sexual assault, uh, charges. So, you know, all charges alleged and he resigned, right? Then, you know, he wasn't, as far as I know, you know, not, not actually, um, found guilty of anything, but, you know, uh, th- these kinds of things follow him, you know, and you mentioned, uh, what, what he's doing now is, you know, some, something in the real estate space. He's the co-founder of Open Door, which, That's right. yeah, as yeah. people might or remember, 
went public via a $5 billion SPAC deal with one of Chamath Palihapitiya's uh, SPAC companies. And so these guys are all in a really, really tight-knit circle jerk with each other and have been for the last 30 years. And it's not just... Uh, kind of uh, uh, intertwining of, of politics and values, but also a, increasingly a deep intertwining of finance uh, and influence. Very much so. Yeah. And, and uh, that company has the stock price has been tanking and he's been increasingly sort of belligerent online um, and had a strange CNBC appearance where he kind of flipped out at the, at the host who asked him a pretty benign question about your business seems to be struggling. Um, yeah, just to go back real quick to the Keith Wabrod Stanford thing. I mean, some it, perhaps it's worth noting. I mean, uh, he, he later came out as gay and so did Teal, but like, you know, I'm a cishet man, but we, you know, uh, homophobic, I mean, people who are gay can be homophobic, um, you know, can still act in that manner. And certainly closet people can too, but some people like to use that as an excuse along with the kind of testing bounds of speech thing, or that the lecturer they were heckling may not have been gay actually, but you know, they, they hurled slurs at him and they wished death upon him. They said, we hope you die of AIDS. And there were some other things too. And people have written about this, but you know, there's this way in which you see this online today all the time, including from some of the same people, which is, why are you mad? I'm just saying what I'm allowed to say. Like, I'm just testing the bounds of speech or like, you know, it's it's a very trolling sensibility, I think, that obviously has bled over into politics. But, um, you know, the reaction was, as I wrote in my piece, Keith Rebois was was sort of demonized on campus, but the Stanford administration released a statement saying something like this outrageous speech is entirely defensible basically or allowed i mean they they said they objected to it but it was perfectly defensible because he didn't break any policy or law so he left eventually and transferred to harvard law poor guy but um but i think mostly because he was kind of infamous on campus um and he's obviously done very well since he hosted a fundraiser with david Sachs in recently in september uh in florida in miami because um you know all these guys have homes in miami now um, and they re- re- had a fundraiser for some uh, existing Republican office holders. Also, I believe it was uh, Blake Masters, Vance, Mehmet Oz, some of these other guys. So what you say about the business relationships is very key, too, because um, it's it's politics. It's a certain sensibility that I've, I've been trying to describe, partly a trolling one, um, kind of an insensitive one towards the effects of their speech, at least, but also these financial arrangements, which have been incredibly lucrative for all of them uh, over the years. Yeah, and I think tracing this history is also really important because you know we hear a lot. We you know we hear a lot more about Peter Till. We talk about Peter Till, right? Other people do. You know, he's the the subject of regular profiles and and stuff, but he's always held up as this like curiosity in Silicon Valley, right? Like, hey, isn't it weird that there's like this one Trumpy uh, Republican guy? And, you know, we see, you know, different names over, over, over the years, right? You know, I remember, uh, you know, 10 years ago, or whatever, it was the neo-reactionary, right? Like, hey, these are weird, like dark enlightenment monarchist neo-reactionaries. They're, you know, the kind of Curtis Yarvin, you know, Minchus Moldbug, the, the kind of uh, Astral Star Codex kind of stuff, right? Like, but it's always held up as this, uh, this anomaly, uh, in an otherwise like bastion, you know, Bay Area, Silicon Valley, uh, you know, bastion of like 
good liberal progressivism, good kind of, you know, technological progressivism. Um, but what we see now, and I wonder, I wonder, uh, you know, why it, they've, it, you know, it, is it because of Trump and other, in short, that like some of these guys are starting to come out of the woodworks and become a bit more vocal? Because as the history we've just been tracing shows is that these aren't new developments. Peter Till was never anomalous. He was never this like island unto himself, kind of standing alone, isolated. Um, you know, he always had this like close inner circle and and extended kind of, you know, and, and increasingly extending circle around him of these kinds of really wealthy entrepreneurs, politicians, other hangers on. Um, and, but I don't think they were all so vocal as Peter Till has always been for the last, you know, 30 years. He's never shied away from what his beliefs are and his, uh, you know, radical right-wing ideology and all of that. It does seem like maybe some of these other guys did spend a little bit of time uh, kind of, you know, hiding or, you know, uh, you know, they, they had their, their youthful uh, dalliances with this stuff. And then, you know, then they, they, they grew up, they got down to work becoming tech founders and building their empires. Um, but it seems like those values, those politics never went away. And is it, you know, is it, is it because of, Trump and is it since you know because I you know anecdotally it seems to me that it has been the last like five years since 2016 where these guys have started coming out of the woodwork a bit more have started becoming a bit more vocal in terms of you know talking to the media shit posting but also vocal with their money right spending yes. investing donating and all of that yeah I I think. It certainly has changed. I mean, I think a lot of these folks did have these beliefs. I would point to a few things. Um, you know, just to fill in a little bit of the history for someone like Sachs, like, yeah, he did sort of build his career and his wealth. I mean, he was at PayPal as COO. He then, uh, uh, I believe he he founded Yammer, which was like a, a business social networking company, sold it to Microsoft. My fucking um, university uses Yammer. And really? I I've never used it, so I, refuse, I know nothing about it. I've been it. at two universities now that use Yammer, and I refuse to uh, engage with that without even yeah. knowing it was a David Sachs joint. <laughs> well, that, then he was brought into Zenefits, um, I think an HR-type company, and he is credited with turning it around. I mean, that's sort of the popular narrative. I actually did wonder if maybe uh, Musk would make him CEO of, of Twitter, given his sort of turnaround artist reputation, but... Obviously, Musk wants that for himself. But um, so I think some of these guys were sort of, um, you know, building their empires and living their lives. And also, you know, the the political climate was pretty friendly to them. Certainly, um, uh, even in the Obama era, like I still think sometimes I was sort of toying with this on Twitter the other day. We're, we're kind of living in Eric Schmidt's world uh, to to pull back a name from the Obama administration, which is just like you start having the union of Silicon Valley and the government in a lot of ways. Um, and you know, people started becoming weapons contractors or, or military contractors. Uh, certainly that's how Peter Thiel has helped solidify his power and grow his powers by becoming a major intelligence contractor. So tech kind of in some ways started to be a little less separate from everything. People did have more money to start putting into politics um, one other thing I might point to, which is something I, I really try to draw out in the article, which is 
I think also, you know, we have this greater era of political cynicism that Trump helped kind of catalyze. Um, I mean, if you were a, a Bush critic in the 2000s, you already thought politics or, you know, p- choose your era. But like, I was pretty depressed about political prospects under Bush. But, you know, it became a little more uh, transparent or uh, apparent, I suppose, that you know, everything is broken nothing works in this country. And then you have a lot of kind of refugees from the Democratic Party, people who are perhaps uh, even in Silicon Valley who might have paid lip service to the Democratic Party or donated out of some sense of reciprocity or something like that. Like, it's pretty hard to defend the Democrats anymore. Um, and so I think that that sort of pushed some people to the right. I, I, one thing I argue in my piece is that there is there are all these sorts of people, even someone like Elon Musk claims that he was sort of pushed out of the democratic party, though. I really doubt that. Um, but you know, it's both kind of the Trumpism teal kind of making it okay to come out as a politically active right winger in tech, but also I think people kind of getting fed up with, with the, the political status quo. And also the, I have been a little surprised at how like the culture war and and stuff about wokeism has swept through tech in a way that I didn't really expect. I mean, a couple of years ago when I admit like when even sort of woke start being treated as an epithet, like a derisive epithet by right wingers, I, I was like, really? Like maybe I was just too much in my, in my own lefty bubble and thought like the George Floyd protests were were you know the, uh, an important thing going on and then wasn't as sensitive enough to the reaction. But it's sort of like it, it sort of became the language of the new culture war so quickly. And it's certainly caught on in tech, too, I think. Um, I mean, these people were never that liberal and they all were already fleeing to Austin and Miami, which is something we could talk about. I mean, Sachs has homes in Austin and Miami also. Um, so I, I would I would kind of I know that's a multi-factor kind of explanation, but those are sort of the trend lines I see going. And I do sort of say in my piece that Teal is kind of the godfather of all this stuff both as a guiding example and as certainly a broker of relationships and money. You know, one thing I've been curious about also is, you know, with the ascendance of the, of the reactionaries or these neo reactionaries and their networks, part of it feels like it builds up pretty cleanly as on this infrastructure you've been laying out for funding and for ideological connections and social connections and ways for them to enter the culture and establish little scenes and, 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 and cultivate, uh, you know, fake and bullshit, you know, art movements or clout chasing or spectacles to go around. But, uh, you know, I'm curious, like when, when you're, when you were looking at David Sachs, did he seem, or does he seem like in relevant in, in comparison to other people in, in, in Thiel's network, does he seem more like someone who is plugged in, connected to amicable to these, to the neo reactionary ring? Or is he someone who, like you said, pre or, or you've talked about like kind of feels more like a pre-configuration of our iterative a reiteration of the culture warriors of the right wingers of the free speech warriors with more of the, you know, bigotry with more bigotry and, you know, pension for, for trolling that seems to characterize these people. I'll, I'll quickly jump in just to say we should give a shout out to uh, last year. Maura Weigel had a really great piece in the new Republic about Peter Till. And this is the exact argument she's making is that Peter Till is better understood as the spider at the center of a web that he's weaving, right? Like his power really comes from this kind of network that he weaves more so than any kind of like direct action that he, that he does. It's about the connections he puts in place. 
I think those are both interesting points and questions you all are raising. Yeah, Teal strikes me as more uh, someone at the network who also, you know, he likes to cultivate ideas or or think or, or thinkers and perhaps in quotes like Yarvin types. Um, I do think actually that Sax is more while he's part of this network and friends with these guys. I mean, we should also say for those who might not know, he's close friends with Elon Musk. He appeared all the time in those uh, texts that were disclosed as, um, via the Delaware court. And now, as as you guys mentioned earlier, he's in the war room at Twitter, helping decide Twitter's future. Um, but I do see Sachs kind of as a pretty uh, a new version or a recapitulation, maybe, as you said, of, a, of basically a, a powerful right winger. Um, he uh, is sort of a law and order guy. For example, when... when the, the big horror right now, of course, in San Francisco is really the, the social issues. And I mean, they're being cast sometimes as criminal issues. There are there is crime, but, you know, homelessness obviously is being criminalized in Los Angeles. It's been explicitly criminalized like encampments and things like that. And so there's been this sort of default association now that. Um, you know, San Francisco has a lot of issues with homelessness and unaffordable housing, a lot of issues with drug use and, and open air public drug use and, uh, which, and is sort of the intensification of the issues that are plaguing pretty much every major American city. Um, you know, high rents, homelessness, um, kind of social decay, you know, quality of life issues. Um, but to them, I think to people like Sachs and his milieu, these aren't, you know, these aren't social issues. These aren't political issues even necessarily to be solved with the kinds of programs that um, some people at least think can solve them, like providing people housing and, and you know, um, injection sites and, and other sort of social services. You know, they want it to be criminalized and they want the police to do something about it and take these people away. And they, it's, it's upsetting to them when they have to see homeless people. Um, especially outside the Twitter offices uh, um, in that area where there are a lot of homeless folks. Um, so while I'm not sure if, he, if he's that concerned necessarily about kind of like innovating a new kind of politics, I do see him as uh, or, or sort of, you know, being a Yarvin type with intellectualizing some of this stuff. I do think he, I think he's actually kind of a guy who wants to get things done. He's been donating a lot of money to recalls uh, the, you know, he, was supporting Schellenberger, the, the, the very anti-homeless politician who opposed Newsom. He's interviewed that guy on Colin before. Um, a lot, you see a lot of tech reactionaries um, tweeting about Schellenberger, even about the, the attack on Paul Pelosi. Um, Schellenberger's involved himself in that, of course. I think actually what's different, the one thing that's different, and I should have said this in my last answer to you, Jathan, was, is the posting actually in social media. Uh, and, and this goes to what you were saying, Ed, too, which is like, that I think is the one thing that sort of empowered some of these folks too, and, and helped them sort of come out. I mean, they're, they're, they're compulsive posters and they all talk and to each other and they're all probably in DM groups and stuff. And some of them can't help themselves. Teal doesn't post, but he gives a lot of speeches, but, um, must post a lot, obviously Calicanus, um, and Sachs, and they've just become more comfortable like a lot of folks down from the, the, you know, you and me to the richest people in the world to posting their thoughts and, and feeling like they have to respond to public events. So that's also been a way in these, which these folks have stepped forward. But I, I think Sachs's politics are in some ways conventionally right wing. He is trying to appeal to kind of post left and disenchanted lefties and Democrats. And that's who you see actually being brought on to call in the, his podcast site 
some of whom were, were brought on with actual deals, contracts, sub-stack style, some of whom I think would just decide to set up shop there. But um, that would be the wrinkle, I think, w- with this politics, sort of this appeal towards, like, the Democrats don't care about you anymore. I mean, and keep in mind also, like, he's doing all this in San Francisco, or that's sort of his base of operations. Of course, now he's a big supporter of J.D. Vance and Blake Masters, and he even donates to Kirsten Cinema, which I think is sort of a, a, a trollish thing to do. Um, but it, it, it's, it's really about, you know, he's operating in a liberal milieu in San Francisco, but it's really about conventional right-wing goals, I, I would say, and and putting his money where his mouth is, uh, which he is doing. I think it's very, very interesting how kind of two different things happening right now have become uh, a kind of synecdoche of his politics, right? In the in the sense, like there's the, a local issue of, as you were talking about, with like San Francisco, right? And and like homelessness and violent crime in San Francisco is this kind of like case study he uses. Uh, to push forward this like radical kind of law and order uh, approach to cleaning up the city, getting the country back on track. You know, you, you have a really great quote uh, or a really great paragraph uh, in, in your um, piece. You know, I'll just uh, briefly quote it here where you, you, you refer to uh, uh, Ed and, and Jason's work where you say, this ethos was perhaps best described by Vice's Edward Angueso Jr. and Jason Kobler when they called this year mayoral race in Los Angeles, the quote-unquote next-door election, referring to the social app that has become an epicenter for racist and classist complaints about crime and homelessness. It's a draconian version of call-the-manager politics. It's time to let the police, the custodians of capitalist order, do something, right? So I, li- I like that that framing of a, a draconian version of call-the-manager politics. It, it kind of, it marries this uh, the uh, the brutal efficiency of a technocratic kind of you know politics with the kind of broken windows theory of a kind of you know Giuliani cleaning up Times Square um, and in fact I think there's a lot of analogies we could draw here between the kind of like you know Giuliani as a law and order uh, along with Bill Bratton as the the commissioner for the NYPD right kind of you know this law and order regime uh, for cleaning up Times Square, you know, making it into a, a Disney-fied, family-friendly place, uh, and in doing so, right, like uh, hyper-criminalization of everything, uh, you know, the smallest thing becomes the most, you know, uh, held up as the most criminal activity. Um, that's the whole idea of broken windows theory. And I think there's a lot of analogies here between what we see uh, with the discourse around in San Francisco, uh, around, you know, uh, dog, ra- dogs going rabid and getting addicted to meth because they're eating, you know, the poop from homeless people, uh, who are themselves drug users. Like, really, really, like, like, stupid, uh, you know, brain injury, uh, concussion politics, right? Um, where, Absolutely. So- 
<laughs> but it, but it has a lot of influence and a lot of power because it it it, it gets people worked up, right? And it has something yes. for them to yell about, and it and it draws in strange this strange cadre of people. I mean, that the, you open your piece talking about this kind of coterie of of call in uh, people. You know, this like social podcasting platform that David Sachs founded, where you know it's it's not the 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 right wing, you know, David Sachs is explicitly against both the neocons and the woke left, right? Because like, as this, as this Newsweek uh, column he wrote recently, you know, which Elon Musk uh, tweeted out calling it exceptionally well said, you know, just the headline of this piece says it all, right? The neocons and the woke left are joining hands and leading us to woke war three. Exceptionally well said because it makes zero sense. But I think uh, this also gets to the other thing, right? So we have a local issue at San Francisco that's a kind of representative of this draconian uh, domestic policy that David Sachs has. But then Ukraine is representative of a international geopolitics of a kind of isolationism, uh, American nationalism, right? He calls himself a, a populist, right? They, you know, David Sachs is another one of these people that's come out and said, you know, my, my politics is populism. Um, but him being so vocal about these two issues, one a local issue and one an international issue, are essentially it's up in the air how much he actually cares about them as issues and how much he actually just is using them as ways to get forward broader kind of political ideological messages and, and policy platforms for how he thinks uh, domestic policy in this con- in the U.S. should run and how international policy should run. Uh, there's a there's a lot there, but I also do would love to get into the way that these two issues as well, the kind of you know homelessness in San Francisco and the war in Ukraine, have themselves also become extremely divisive issues, mm-hmm. kind of drawing new political divisions between these you know uh, uh, you know reorganizing the 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 political partnerships and allyships that happen here you know it's it's why we see uh you know on on david Sachs's podcast platform colin right as you mentioned you know it's a lot of these post-left contrarians it's jesse single jimmy Dore, glenn greenwald uh michael tracy brianna joy gray matt taibbi right like that doesn't sound like a neo-reactionary right those are all like post-leftist, contrarian, libertarian types. But then we also see the issue around violent crime in California is getting, you know, the the Young Turks and Jacobin crowd all wrapped up, right? The Anna Caspian, uh, Ben Burgess, uh, Nando Villa, Villa, right? Like these kind of Jacobin lefties, uh, you know, who are all of a sudden starting to, to spout uh, really quote, reactionary views about like the scourge of violent crime and homelessness in California. And it seems like David Sachs has perfectly positioned himself as, you know, someone that is, uh, you know, sits right in the middle, right? I mean, he has this, you, you lay out and that he used to have his own show on call in called the Purple Pills podcast and purple because it's uh, a merger between the blue pill and the red pill, right? And his, his, uh, his, his PAC, his political action committee is, uh, is also called like purple 
purple good government pack, right? So, so he's kind of setting himself up as a, as a purple third way between the woke left and the neocons. And it sounds like he's weirdly got, a. uh, not only a big audience, but a number of allies, uh, uh, you know, unsuspecting allies uh, in this this kind of uh, uh, movement with him. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think some of the people who are on the plat on Colin, for example, don't necessarily may not even think of him or or, or know that they're kind of. I'm not saying they're being influenced, but know that that they share something in common. But. Um, I think some do. I mean, uh, at least according to one analytics site I consulted, the the, the account that uh, on Twitter that David Sachs retweets most is Glenn Greenwald, and um, you know Greenwald uh, tweeted about my article. Of course, he didn't link to it or cite me. He called me some standard, but he got very mad. He did get very mad, which is what he does best. And um, are you one you know, of the greatest threats to Western civilization along with Taylor me, Lorenz? <laughs> and other- <laughs> I haven't made, I haven't made to that level yet. Um, sometimes I think that also just, you're on your way up. I know, but um, he just, um, but um, you know, what happens is like, first of all, the article is mostly about the domestic stuff. Um, I mean, it ends with Sachs saying how he wants to replicate the playbook of the chase of Boudin recall all over the country. Um, but you know, I, this Ukraine stuff and has been such an opportunity in a way for, um, people who want to kind of, who are, maybe are on the MAGA right and want to be nationalists and, but want to yeah, reject the neocon legacy very understandably in some ways, but they, in, in their own way, they act like they're the only option. Um, I mean that, and, and so it, it creates this weird division where it's like, you're either with like some post lefties and MAGA right people who, who probably don't give a shit about Ukraine, but just want to get out of there. And then, um, of course, this sort of mainstream consensus that says, like, yes, let's pour weapons into Ukraine and do the proxy war thing. Um, and, you know, personally, I, I, th- I think we should be negotiating with Vladimir Putin because you negotiate with your enemies um, pretty much no matter how horrible the war is or how many war crimes they're committing. But I also don't think we should just, like, give them Crimea by default, um, which seems to be kind of the Sachs-Musk right-wing arguably Russian sympathetic position. Like one thing I've been trying to avoid is like calling these people Putinists or like tools of Russia or whatever. Um, I think that does obscure a lot of this debate. I mean, you can, you can arguably say that like, yeah, if you, if you propose that Crimea should stay part of Russia, you are basically representing Russian interests that, that is hard to dispute, but you know, in general, they are trying to cut out, cut their own way, which is that, um, a, a real sort of indifference towards um, any sense of internationalism, but also you can kind of see where this came from because we've had 20 years plus of internationalism that's only been done via the barrel of a gun. Um, as to you know, how many of these beliefs are authentic or if the war were happening somewhere else besides Ukraine, it's, it's hard to say. But all these people we're talking about, uh, you know, I'm not saying they're all disingenuous, but you know, we, we all are performing on social media in some ways and people do sometimes, uh, tout opinions or tout them ex- especially loudly because they play well to their audience. And I think it's hard not to see the feedback loop of, of social media, not kind of like amplifying, um, 
Sachs or some of these folks and making them a little more loud and confident in their opinions. I mean, he does have a lot of followers now. He's on TV more. He's being asked to write op-eds and he's being praised by his buddy, the richest guy in the world. So, I mean, arguably it's all working out pretty well for him. Um, again, what I find a little troubling is how he sort of acts like his side has kind of cornered the market on being anti-war and pro-negotiations or diplomacy. Uh, when I think it's, it's kind of more complicated than that. Um, and you also got to think like, I, I don't know, 20 years ago, would, would people like Sachs and Teal or whoever else, would they be, um, against the Iraq war? I, I, I find that hard to believe, but it is a hypothetical. What do we do about, <laughs> what do we do about, you know, people like David Sachs? I mean, one thing that I think also coming away reading this is like this whole approach has worked for him. Yeah. Right. I mean, despite having such a voluptuous, you know, you know, vile shit written, despite being kind of clearly in cahoots with these reactionary networks um, and having like a very clear agenda and sort of like trying to advance and fund and create ground for, you know, create safe spaces for right wing essentially you know he's been able to leverage that into deals you know into paypal which you know then the paypal mafia leveraged itself into other you know and uh enterprises and then they helped each other to secure funding for their enterprises and cash out and so on and so forth so they've just like tapped the spigot it feels like you know what can be done or should be done or what is maybe the or maybe if that's not the right question like what is the right way to look at you know, right wingers who are like David Sachs, you know, particularly wealthy, particularly financially connected, see themselves as savvy political operators even, and are well enough established, connected, supported, liked to get into the war room at Twitter or to, you know, be behind important mergers or deals or acquisitions or political campaigns or supporting political candidates and movements inside of the GOP as an example. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, obviously, <laughs> these guys are winning in some ways. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think there are a few things we have to think about. One, a lot of the public just hasn't really thought about, I mean, they hasn't really thought about tech people as political actors, perhaps, or really taking their politics seriously, I think. Uh, I think people, you know, journalists and academics and scholars and activists certainly have. But um, there's a way in which, you know, some of these guys are kind of considered a joke or, I mean, Zuckerberg is a bit of a ridiculous figure, but then, you know, he owns half of a Hawaiian Island or whatever. Like, and obviously his product is, an, is enormously important politically, but like there's a way in which some of these people aren't almost aren't taking that seriously. And I think we need to take them seriously and also need to like listen to them and see what their money is doing and say that, you know, they aren't just liberals by default, not that, you know, liberals are necessarily our friends, but they're, they're something else. Like one line I, I put in the piece that I, I'm glad it, it stayed in was, um, you know, there was this interview with Megan Kelly that Jason Calacanis was on and Calacanis is one of Sachs's friends. Um, he's on the all in podcast. He's now in the war room with Musk and Sachs at Twitter. Calacanis is ostensibly more liberal and he seems to have had some disagreements with Sachs about Ukraine. And sometimes he does ask Sachs a few questions publicly on Twitter, like, oh, do you really believe this or X, Y, Z? But on, um, 
On the issue of crime, for example, in San Francisco and Boudin, they have been completely in lockstep. Um, Calicanis has said things that are almost as extreme, I would argue. Um, Calicanis actually doesn't, as far as I know, doesn't live in San Francisco, but hired someone to write a substack about crime in San Francisco that he publicly fundraised for. Uh, and, you know, his interview with, with Megyn Kelly was very similar uh, in, in what he said. I mean, they both paid some lip service to the need for criminal justice reform, and Calicanis was a bit, uh, went a bit farther with that. But then one thing I think you need to listen to, or people need to listen to, is the, and this is the line I was referring to, um, David Sachs then starts, they start talking about fentanyl, and Sachs is calling it a super drug, and Sachs starts saying that, Fentanyl is Chinese payback for the opium wars. And he does that sort of Orientalist line that you hear sometimes about Iranians. Like he says that the Chinese have long memories. I mean, not the exact phrasing, but basically says that. And that this is payback for the opium wars that fentanyl is flooding into American cities. Like, I mean, look, uh, uh, maybe there's an, a, a role with China, with fentanyl being produced in China and coming to the U.S., but like, that's a pretty wild thing to say. (laughs) And you know, that's the kind of, that's something that he seems to really believe. And that's sort of some of the anti-China xenophobic currents that do run through the MAGA right. Um, And I think people need to know that. Um, I mean, certainly Biden is doing his best right now, I think to kind of continue the, the, the mini cold war with China. I, I am trying to take him at his word. So when I hear things like that, especially, it's not just the fear over crime, but when I also see people around him kind of not really questioning him very much or, you know, these people are welcomed in every room they walk in. And so I, I don't really know wh- how to answer the question of what is to be done except to, to sort of write about them and what they're doing, where their money is going and, 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 you know, uh, people might sometimes say nice things about criminal justice reform or that they just want safer cities. But, you know, when they then do that and then help run a kind of AstroTurf campaign to recall a DA or um, fund people to write things about the city that they don't live in. Or, for example, um, there's a woman who became notorious as the meth poop lady, Michelle Tandler. She, sort of, she, she was called an anti-San Francisco influencer. She left the city. She had a small startup that was funded by Kraft Ventures, Sachs's company. I mean, I don't know if he just funded it because um, of her anti-San Francisco rhetoric or because he actually believed in her business. But, you know, these relationships exist. And I think we should know about this kind of stuff, um, where the money's coming from and where it's going. That's often, you know, and who benefits. And that hopefully can at least bring some transparency to, to, to how these political processes are running. I mean, the current DA, the woman who replaced uh, Boudin, she was, she was working for Boudin. I believe her last name was Barnes. Um, and she was, she quit and she became one of his critics. And, so, and she presented herself as a volunteer spokesperson for the anti Boudin recall campaign. And then she was appointed by the mayor, London Breed, who didn't really like Boudin. She was appointed as a replacement. Uh, she's not doing so well. And one thing that happened was it was revealed that she actually was paid by another uh, recall group, $150,000. And this wasn't revealed at the time. That group, I don't know if Sachs funded that group. Um, this this billionaire property developer, Obendorf, definitely was one of the funders of that group. But... Um, she basically, there, there, there are two groups. She was a spokesperson for one, and then there was a connected group, both funded by the Obendorf guy, and she got paid by one and was a volunteer for the other. So, like, 
you know, people need to know this kind of stuff. And one thing I heard from, I heard from some people who live in San Francisco or surrounding communities who are involved in education, people who work for cities or, or education departments. And some of them aren't happy with what's going on in terms of, you know, quality of education, funding, things like that. But also they feel like their, their ability to govern and be and be political voices in their communities slipping away because there's all this outside money coming in and there's sort of dark money or at least money where you're not quite sure where it's coming from coming in. And, you know, these local school, like the school board race in San Francisco or the school board recall in San Francisco which, uh, became a national issue. And so you have these local races becoming national issues for these basically tech oligarchs who can pour in money and then want to replicate that as Sachs himself said across the country. So I don't know what else you can do really besides that. I mean, a wealth tax would be nice. Um, you know, uh, and right now you have a whole political party, certainly the, the Republican party that's very friendly to these people and needs their money. Uh, and DeSantis is their guy for now. I mean, perhaps Trump, they'll certainly line up behind Trump in one way or another if, if he wins the 2024 nomination. And, but um, they're ready to, to ride DeSantis as their horse, basically. And they are also, I mean, but I also wonder, you know, one thing I, I bring up in the article is like, can this really scale? I mean, that's actually, you know, it's the tech word, but it's actually something that Teal said in his speech a couple months ago at this National Conservatism Conference was like, he said, can this stuff scale? He, he accused kind of his colleagues of being too nihilistic and not putting forth a positive program. So that's the other thing maybe that we need to draw attention to is like, these people don't have any positive ideas. Like avoiding war is good, but domestically they don't have any positive ideas. Like they don't really have ideas for how to handle um, homeless issues or housing. They're just, they're fleeing California for Austin and Miami because there's no income tax and they see those as friendlier States. But then as Teal himself said, the housing prices are going through the roof and some of those same problems are, re are reappearing in those other cities. You know, I wonder why. So I think that's the other thing is like you start asking them questions or if they ever actually have to speak beyond their canned talking points, like these people don't have answers for how to solve what ails us. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting aspect to all of this. Like, you know, the headline of your piece calls David Sachs, you know, Silicon Valley's prophet of urban doom. Uh, and, you know, Till's speech, uh, you know, he was kind of denouncing this, what he called nihilistic negation. Uh, yeah, you it's know, such a teal phrase, like pseudo-intellectual. Yeah. It's a great phrase. I, I, it's good, I, yeah. <laughs> you, you don't got to hand it to him, but it is a good <laughs> phrase. Uh, um, and, and, and you mentioned in the piece as well that this exact thing of like they, their politics is largely made up of stuff that they stand against, right? So yeah. it is this like, you know, this, this, you know, saying no to, to stuff. But what, what is it that they're saying yes to other than their own wealth and their own influence, right? Which does kind of lend a, a kind of cynical bend to a lot of this where, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, the, the goal they are trying to achieve in a positive sense of a, of, of, of a yes, um, rather than a negative sense of what they're standing against, that positive goal is the continual growth of their own wealth and, and influence. Absolutely. And, and, you know, that's, that's the classic contradiction also, uh, oh, not classic, but the, the contradiction of like MAGA populism or when any of these guys call themselves populists is like, or how the Republican party has been for years when they, they try to claim to represent working class interests. But like, what are you going to actually do if you're trying to be this sort of reactionary tech populist? 
um, you know, you got to at least put something for like, give it, give us a UBI or, or, or healthcare <laughs> or something, but obviously they're never going to do it. No, so, no. you know, in a way I find that almost reassuring because it shows a certain ep- emptiness to the political program and the ideology. What does really concern me is what you were saying, which is like, they are achieving power and wealth. Um, and it's mostly to selfish ends, or at least to just perpetuating the status quo of like cutthroat capitalism. Uh, and maybe we can start wrapping up on, on, on some of these points. But, you know, you mentioned, obviously, the move to Austin, you know, and a lot of that is a, a kind of, you know, I, I think there's a there, there's a there's an obvious cultural aspect to that. Right. Where like, you know, Texas as this kind of, you know, the, the frontier of of individualistic, you know, cult, and, and where a lot and a frontier of the culture war. But Austin is also like a nice enough city it's uh that they can feel comfortable there they're you know escaping the uh the income tax is obviously a big part of it you know the they as you said as well a lot of them have houses in miami and you know the all-in summit was in miami this past may uh and you know the bitcoin conference right and i think that's obviously a connection here is that miami has a crypto mayor uh and so you know they're going all in on this you know trying to explicitly trying to attract the the kind of web3 crypto silicon valley types to come to Miami but why is it that they are th- that they are all kind of throwing their lot in with Ron DeSantis right like a very not an obvious person uh to, to not an obvious politician to kind of raise up as the next leader of the Republican party right like you know very much kind of a challenge to Trump as well in some ways. Um, like, you know, from what I see that, you know, Trump and DeSantis have a kind of uneasy, uh, relationship with each other. Um, and, you know, DeSantis as well being himself not a particularly charismatic or interesting person, not a particularly uh, visionary uh, politician. You know, it, it just almost seems like right time, right place for for him. Um, what is it about DeSantis that has these people like David Sachs, uh, Keith Raboy, uh and others like raising tons of money for him, throwing their support in for him? Uh, you know, why, why is it, is it just the Miami connection or is there something else there? That's a good question. I mean, I think part of it is the Republic. I mean, neither side is a very impressive roster of, of candidates, but, um, you know, frankly, the polling is just, you know, the, the polling for the last couple of years has just been, you know, for 2024 preferred candidates for the Republicans is Trump way up there. And DeSantis, a somewhat distant second, and then like everyone else, um, or maybe Don Jr. <laughs> like at a ten percent or something. But like um, that's part of it, I think. It's just that he has sort of been uh, by default almost deputized as the as the the best opportunity after Trump. If Trump, you know, is indicted or or dies or moves to Saudi Arabia. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is, you know, he'll get the best apartment in Neom 
Um, <laughs> he's going to live uh, inside the orb. Yeah, that's right. But I, I don't really understand the appeal, actually, because I don't I mean, the Republican Party isn't overflowing with charisma, but you do watch DeSantis. And I mean, Trump has his certain kind of bullyish insult comic charisma and like guy who's been on TV a lot, whatever you want to say. Like, we don't have to go through that. But DeSantis has, is like a little dweeb. Uh, his voice is a little silly and he's not charismatic. I think they might, I mean, he has new England, all boys, uh, you know, all boys school voice is what, is yeah, what he, he has. Like, like yeah. he sounds like a long lost Kennedy brother or something like yeah, that. Yeah. He's like trying to please the headmistress or maybe he just got punched in the balls, but I can he, only I, imagine Ron DeSantis in shorts and, and high socks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are a couple things going for him. He has a big state behind him. Somehow he at least remains governor there uh, and a key electoral state. Um, he's not afraid to fight the cultural warrior battles that s- at least some of these people care about. You know, he's very big on anti-wokeness and anti-trans issues. And, you know, that is one of the few things that gets the Republican Party going these days. Um it is because they don't really have any other program besides like tax cuts and judges. Um, so that is perhaps one other reason is that, you know, he seems to like fighting those battles and proposing horrible legislation uh, and, you know, calling Disney groomers and stuff like that. But, and I expect that he'll be a very corporate friendly and tech friendly Republican. I mean, the, the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, just quick aside, like he doesn't actually have a lot of official powers, which I think the, the city is mostly run by, I think a city council. But, um, I think that's one reason why he also just does all this crypto bullshit. But like that guy uh, <laughs> probably should be investigated for some sort of form of fraud or financial malfeasance related to all that crypto and city funds and things like that. But, you know, any other kind of responsible state government would would at least raise a little bit of alarm, but um, obviously that's not going to happen under DeSantis. So I I don't know. Ultimately, I don't know. I think they see him as the best other option. And in a way it's a little gauche to be an open Trump supporter. So uh, it's a way of hedging your bets, I think. And it's a way of someone who they do find more palatable there's still something I think about Trump for someone like Sachs or Chamath, who they, they find at least a little distasteful and perhaps are hoping that, that DeSantis can be the one in 2024. Unfortunately, so much of our future really does boil down to uh, respectability politics, right? Like, like who's who who is a respectable uh, culture warrior that, that we can get behind? That And I get back to like, that's why also, you know, maybe this stuff won't scale. Maybe DeSantis isn't the guy because if Trump is, you know, in legal standing and on his own two feet in 2024, he will be the nominee. The Republicans love him. So they are, I mean, there's some ways in which these guys are able to, to speak to some of these Republican issues or perhaps even shape the party. But, you know, you do have the Republican base who still just fucking love Trump. Yeah. Oh, and they, they, they fucking do. And it's huge. It's like, I don't think we can discount like how massive of a base he still has and how, how powerful of a base. And, and this was really, I think, you know, bringing it back to Till, this was one of like, uh, Till's big kind of, uh, power broker moments was that he, he bet the whole, he bet the house on Trump and, and won, 
you know, and, and through that kind of emboldened a lot of these other people to, if not get with Trump, at least get with MAGA. And I think there has been this kind of uh, a bit of a disconnection between the MAGA ideology and Trump as a figure, which plays very nicely for the respectability politics of people like David Sachs and these others where they might not want to get with Trump, but they do want to get with MAGA as an I ideology. Uh, and then maybe Ron DeSantis then becomes a kind of conduit or, or an empty vessel for that MAGA ideology and one that is a bit more respectable. Does any of this substantively change with other replacers of the MAGA ideology? Or is the MAGA ideology a static, sort of stable formation? And it just really, they just need someone to hold the, the Eldrick ca- uh, chalice, you know, right now. <laughs> That's a good question. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I would be hesitant to say it's a stable thing. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, it does feel like, though, as I've been going through some of these things and talking to people um, about this article, it does feel increasingly like this recapitulation, as we've discussed, like a lot of this stuff does go back to paleocons in the 90s or um, or or uh, Berger's in the 50s or even the campus culture war stuff that that is certainly a feature now of the of the political landscape. That's that's what Sachs and, and Teal sort of grew up in in the early 90s at Stanford. So. You know, I could see it transforming, and certainly if the domestic landscape changes or there's some geopolitical crisis or another pandemic to add on to our never-ending pandemic, like, you know, there, there are transformations that could take place. But I think some of these trend, some of these broad ideas, like certainly the, the kind of disgust towards uh, any sort of, like, international co- cooperation or internationalism, not just military intervention, um, you know, the hatred for multilateral institutions and also, but just the, the sense of profound nihilism and anger at home without, and, and this empty populism that excites a lot of a kind of public frenzy, but, you know, is not going to satiate them. That's, that's perhaps the other thing. I mean, not, not to sound like too much like a lib or something, but like, you know, that's why we had like January 6th and other things like this, or even like occasional kind of stochastic terrorism is because like there, there's nothing being offered these people except anger and outrage and a sense that the Democrats are groomers who are totally destroying the country. So if you don't give these people some material benefit, maybe we need to be Marxist for a second, um, or some, something really to grab their hands onto, I don't know how this stuff sort of, uh, or where this stuff goes. And I don't see it staying static, actually. I think I see it getting worse in some ways. Appropriately for the article, which is about prophets of doom and nihilistic negation, I think that's a nice place to uh, <laughs> wrap up the episode. <laughs> um, no, I, I think it's a it's a really great and very necessary piece on on David Sachs. You know, we, you know, we were talk we we began the episode talking about how you know Sachs has kind of flown under the radar in some ways. He's not been so dead center in our sights, you know, and, and, you know, us in particular, but also 
our, our kind of community of, 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 of leftist tech and politics watchers. Uh, and I think, you know, Sachs has put himself at center stage and, and thus, you know, requires us to pay a lot more attention to who he is, where he comes from and what he believes. Yeah, I wish I could have talked to him. I mean, I, I I was very polite and tried to interview him, but um, you know, I get it, and I agree with you. He's he's putting himself forward as a political operator and a and a public figure and a major donor and someone who's trying to shape political debate. So, um, you know, I I hope people do this with some of these other folks that that are, are starting to come forward too. Absolutely, a hundred percent. Well, this has been uh, yeah. really excellent, Jacob. Um, where can people find you and your work? Uh, for now, you can find me on twitter.com slash Silverman Jacob. No, I don't know. I'm probably not leaving, but, uh, you know, and I have a website, jacobsilverman.com and all my contact info is either on my website or on Twitter. Uh, always glad to hear from people. Um, and yeah, and I have this book coming out hopefully in, in, in July and hopefully some articles next year. So I'm around. Excellent. Uh, yeah, we well, we look forward to having you back on uh, for sure to to talk about the book, which I, I hear it's about this new thing called crypto. Uh, I, lo- I I I don't I look forward to learning about it next year. <laughs> yeah, me me too, me too. <laughs> yeah, reserving yeah. judgment until I until I get a, give it a fair shake. Hey, you got to keep an open mind. It's only been like thirteen years of Bitcoin. It could finally it That's could right. finally Innocent turn into until something. proven guilty. Right. Yeah. Until proven guilty. No, thank you guys. I, I you know I love what you guys do. It's a mutual admiration society. So thank you. <laughs> That's very nice. Thanks, Jacob. All oh, right. And, and everybody you. else can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week. Uh, we've got a book club series going on. We regularly do, uh, you know, extended interviews with people and other stuff. So find us over there. Uh, and until next time, later. Adios. Adios.